it's a 24 7 facility. yeah i'm always amazed by how many interns and residents you take well we are too we <laughs> yeah, I bet you are. yeah we, we actually don't quite have enough um they're wonderful mm -hmm. people they're uh, the advantage you're getting these trainees is they're the brightest minds that one can find they're they're positive oriented they're hard workers they're very compassionate Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. And this is Dr. Susan Lowe. And this is the Per Podcast, Per Podcast Live, once again from Tokyo, mm -hmm. beautiful Japan, where the sun is not shining at the moment. No, but we had good sushi for lunch. Did you have sushi for lunch? I had a bento box. Ah, Ooh. you had the you bento had the box. the official bento box. Yeah, yeah, I would have rather had sushi. But it wasn't, <laughs> yeah, the uh, sushi was really good. Uh, but I have to say that here they have the nicest lunch provided because the bento box is beautiful box. yeah it mm. was nice yeah so mm -hmm. so who do we have today mm -hmm. uh, my name is phil fox i'm a cardiologist at animal medical center in new york city that's awesome phil thank you for joining us and we are going to talk about lots of fun things mm. yeah. excited cat things cat things have you told Only. phil the rule oh yeah the there's rule. a rule no d word oh okay mm -hmm. yes i'll have to try to restrain the d -word. i'll have to rub that out for a moment you'll have yes. to find like another yeah. phrase like canine is okay yeah canine's okay, okay. Yeah, canine is okay I because like, you can refer to the tooth i like uh, to say always said the tooth yeah. i like the inferior species that works for me <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, yeah so uh, there's a rule so if you say the d word by accident we are forgiven uh forgiving but, we are forgiving uh, forgiving but yeah it costs you a drink <laughs> that's it. Or a coffee. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. We can do a coffee. Um, some mornings, that's the most valuable thing that you could give me. So, but we're really excited to, to have you on board. And uh, normally, it's just going with the flow. Mm. So can you tell a little bit what you do at Yeah, what do you AMC? do at AMC? I have a few roles. Um, I'm a clinician. I see uh, patients uh, from walk-in to tertiary referrals. I... Uh, I have a role for uh, scientific investigation. Um, we study naturally occurring diseases that afflict pets and try to understand better what causes them to become ill and how we might improve our way to diagnose uh, their diseases and certainly improve quality of life and extend their survival. And AMC is a uh, non-for-profit clinic in New York City. It's really big, isn't it? It's big. It was. Uh, it had its origins in around 1910, by uh, developed by women who were married to very successful movers and shakers of the world. Uh, they had time and they had the means, and they uh, wanted to make a positive uh, benefit. And started with horses, and then everyone with a horse had uh, other species, and it morphed into the 30s into a small animal clinic downtown and moved uptown to the current location in oh, 62 or so. Uh, there might be 350 employees, eight or nine floors, and um, it's a 24-7 facility. Yeah, I'm always amazed by how many interns and residents you take. Well, we are too. We <laughs> <laughs> I bet you are. <laughs> yeah, we, we actually don't quite have enough. Um, they're wonderful mm -hmm. people. They're 
the advantage you're getting these trainees is they're the brightest minds that one can find. They're they're positive oriented. They're hard workers. They're very compassionate. We probably have some 22 interns and wow. perhaps 20 residents, and then a faculty of uh, 50. 45, 50 yeah. board certified specialists. Yeah, you have every specialty under the Almost, sun. pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's amazing. And interns and residents, do they tend to come mostly from the U.S. or around the world? Um, they come mostly from the U.S. Uh, we've taken people from many different countries, but um, more and more it's difficult with immigration issues. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It okay. becomes more and more difficult. Yeah. And, and, it's, and, and you're probably using the matching program. It's probably difficult yeah. to get yeah. in, huh? It's the match, and it's a competitive. I'm, I'm glad there wasn't such a thing when I was that. Yeah, age. no, I'm <laughs> saying the same way. I wouldn't be sitting here. I don't know where I'd be, but I wouldn't have. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was. I have to check off check this. I was in the matching program, and it didn't get matched at first. Uh-huh. I wanted to go to Tennessee, did my interview there, and yeah. I put my whole list, and yeah. didn't get matched. And then I. Uh, uh, I was matched after the matching program to Kansas, which was probably the best thing that I could do because ah. they were wonderful there. Mm. But uh, that's how it started. Mm. Almost cool. did a radiology uh, ah, residency. You should have. I should have. <laughs> you know, and that's even worse because it was um, a radiology residency with emphasis on nuclear and radiotherapy, oh my gosh. and that was like way yeah. back so <laughs> yeah well there ought to be a special tax on them for quality of life because they can uh they can make um a good living yeah. reading x-rays at home in their pajamas yeah. yes a good friend of mine lives in hawaii he does uh teleradiology, tele-radiology is where it's a at. couple yeah. of hours a day and that's yeah. it because yeah. he runs around yeah but they're important people and mm-hmm. without them we'd have a harder time to diagnose diseases absolutely yeah absolutely. and i'm not sure i mean as nice as it sounds to sit in your pajamas in hawaii and, and diagnose things it's still staring at shades of gray all day it right? is so yeah there is a downside many shades more than 50 <laughs> more than 50 shades <laughs> yes, of gray yes so you know so. it's uh, not yeah, all as glamorous yeah, as it sounds yeah. and yeah. your specialty what is that so is? my specialty is primarily cardiology mm-hmm. um, and our caseload is uh, oh I don't know even anymore it used to be 50 50 canine feline is probably more and more I mean you would know this but more and more fewer cat people go to the veterinarian yeah. Yeah. Um, it's and that's a trend that's trend. that's just continuing and we see, uh, I don't know, 8% uh, non-canine, non-feline. Mm. We call it exotic special species. Mm. And what's the percentage you said uh, in canine? Yeah, I, 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 think, uh, I think there's uh, it's probably 60, 40 canine, yeah, feline. Yeah. Because I think your clinic is exceptional. Um, there is obviously a lot of cats in New York. Yeah. But people, because they are not exposed to so much danger, yeah. they get really old. And so you probably see quite a lot of them. Yeah, we, we have a, a very unusually unique population of patients. Um, they're indoor cats. So as you say, they're not exposed to accidents mm-hmm. and poisonings and things like that, which is good. And the people tend to really pay a lot of attention and give good care and so we frequently have cats be geez 12 to 20 years of age is yeah. is standard you know? yeah, yeah, yeah yeah i think you you have if, if i think of a lot of the the um, veterinary schools in the u.s they you know it, it it trickles up to them this decrease in feline patients right and so a lot of veterinary schools actually see way like 10 percent fewer yeah, yeah. you know cats than they should so yeah. amc is not so bad mm-hmm. yeah particularly if the school is um not Rural. near a, a major city yeah 
um, mm. people. Yeah, with. because rural cats, they just uh, roam yeah. around. Yeah, they roam around, can. and, and uh, yeah. but um, yeah, it's too bad that uh, no one's been able to figure out why the. I don't think they have. Why well, I think decline. it's because it's complex, right? It's like yeah. any of these things. Yeah. It's so, As a so the number of cats are increasing yeah. still. Probably, so, yeah. Uh, but yeah. the number of cats that visit vets. the vet is decreasing yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, probably partially due to owner attitude. But uh, we, we, we talk about it quite a lot, uh, how important it is. So, so we were talking about weight loss, for instance, cats. It's, yeah. For owners, people don't see it. Yeah. And, and so if you have a regular fat check, yeah. uh, at least that's one thing that you get out of it. So yeah. check the weight yeah. and the yeah. health and that sort of thing. So, so if we talk about uh, cardiac diseases in cats, obviously the D word is very hot right now because of some uh, some developments there. But anything new in the cat that... Uh, yeah, lots new, lots hmm. new. Um, we just completed um, two studies. Um, I published one late 2018, and the second one is in press. Uh, I sent the proofs in of two months ago, and oh, cool. I'm, I'm waiting to see. So uh, some 10 years ago, colleagues and I were together at a meeting, and we th- were trying to see what, what needed to be really prioritized with respect to cat health in mm. terms of cardiovascular, cardiopulmonary. And the top thing that came up, understandably, were cats that had a condition called cardiomyopathy, cardioheart myopathy muscle, diseases of the heart muscle, that is prevalent in cats. It's the number one cause of morbidity and mortality in, in the feline population. Heart, the number one cause of heart morbidity and mortality. Mm. And of all the different types of heart disease that they can get, they one stands out uh, as you know the it's called hypertrophic that means thickened mm-hmm. heart muscle hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and when i got out of school this was a hot new new disease and everything that veterinarians did was based largely on what they did for people because it's very similar to the human condition so it's so similar in terms of anatomy and pathology it's so similar that veterinarians assumed that what happened to affected people had to be true for cats. Hmm. And that drove um, veterinary perspective in this disease for 40 years. Really? Um, and, and decades. And so we, we were colleagues together and we thought, why don't we learn more about the natural history of cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? and you could call that epidemiology. And there's very few epidemiology studies mm-hmm. in veterinary medicine mm-hmm. in any specialty. Yeah. So we, it was unanimous and we thought it was terrific. And I, uh, long story short, I wrote a couple of grants, uh, applications for funding because these things are expensive. And uh, be careful what you wish for. I got a large grant from uh, um, Morris Animal Foundation and a nice grant from the Wind Feline Foundation and thanks to them, uh, money wasn't an object for this, and um, and we started off and we planned, <laughs> you know what you plan isn't usually what happens. <laughs> no. So uh, we had an optimistic. We were looking for 300 control cats and 300 affected cats, which by veterinary standards is huge. It's mm. quite big, yeah. And uh, I had well, 25 people, my colleagues and friends in the U.S. And everyone swore that they would throw in with it. And then a year comes by, and that's when we all have to 
contribute cases. Well, there were no cases. Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> no one had prioritized it. It's it was, Murphy's Law. It was at the top, yeah. but it wasn't the top, Not you know. Yes. So I started calling, and then you know that, you know, you get the signal when pe when you when no one's returning your phone calls <laughs> yes. or answering your emails, and they wanted to do it. They just were over. Everyone is overburdened. So I said, "Wow, um, this is a problem." So I said, "Well, I started to to call and contact colleagues of mine in Europe and around the world, cardiologists I knew, and they were excited to throw in with it, and they were." a little less overcommitted mm. and um, a year and a half or two later I started getting um, data from uh, very large numbers of cases I got some from uh, started with the uh, UK and uh, many cats from France and Germany mm. Mm. and that was enough to get this started and then my American colleagues said oh boy you know yeah we better we pitch better. in yeah and then ultimately uh, over eight or nine years the uh, we, we ended up getting uh, more than 1,000 wow. cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and more than 700 control cats without disease. So it's really a global disease. It's a global disease, and uh, it, it, it you know all's well, it ends well, and it was very uh, gratifying because uh, it was a global study, and you don't mm -hmm. see many of those. And we had uh, 51 investigators uh, in 21 countries and I wow. think uh, six continents. And, and how the, do you put them all yeah, on the Yeah, were you the, the cat the herder for all of yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, I was herding cats. Well, um, yeah. that was interesting because I had a couple of journals that said we can't publish that many authors. It takes mm. too much space. And I <laughs> yes. said, well, um, I, I was important to me and I told everybody that they if they contribute even a few cats, we would put their name on it. What, yeah. Like, why not? You yeah. know. Yeah. And so I walked away from a couple, and um, you know, it was a deal breaker. So then I said, "Wow, what am I going to do if no one will do that?" And then I negotiated with a journal, and they said, "Fine, we'll publish all the contributors." Wow. And um, and, and it's silly that that should I, be a barrier. It's I think, silly, isn't it? yeah. I think online journals are a little bit more yeah, flexible exactly, yeah. in that because otherwise yeah. you have like three yeah. pages of authors. But and even so, it shouldn't be yeah. a barrier. Yeah. yeah. And it, yeah, so so uh, so that came out in 2018. Okay. And uh, a lot of new information, and so what are the highlights? The highlights. Uh, one of the bigger highlights. So in this condition. The left side of the heart, there's a right side and a left side. The mm -hmm. left side of the heart becomes too thick. Mm -hmm. it's, un, it's, it's likely a genetic mutation that is undiscovered. It is in people. And um, it's not good to have a left heart that's too thick. Yeah. It causes uh, arrhythmias. It predisposes sudden death. And it can predispose to developing con uh, fluid accumulation in your lungs called congestive heart failure. And even almost worse, it causes blood clots, which are almost always fatal. Because the heart probably is not able to pump as well as it normally it, does. It, it pumps well, yeah. but it doesn't relax well. Okay. Because there's two cycles, right? It has to expand so that all the returning blood can, can get in. into it, yeah. and then it has to pump it out. Well, pumping is no problem, mm -hmm. but because it can't relax, blood backs up and builds uh, uh, it affects the lungs and so that's called backflow, really. yeah. yeah and that's a that's a real problem so diastole is the issue yeah mm -hmm. so one of the one of the things the first thing we we wanted to ask is there are two variants of of cats with thick hearts there's thick heart we call it hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and there's thick hearts where the heart muscle and valve 
causes an obstruction of flow mm. out the aorta. The aorta is the great vessel in the left heart that carries blood everywhere, mm. oxygenated blood. So the obstructive form in people is really bad. Like mm. if you had that, you're looking at uh, dying suddenly or receiving an implantable defibrillator. Mm -hmm. Um, which is life-saving. They die of arrhythmias, do they? Well, they, they go in a ventricular fib and die. Oh, wow. Yeah, suddenly. Mm -hmm. So, it's, so, uh, so it, was, it was assumed in varying medicine that since the disease was so similar to people, it, then the consequences had to be similar. And then, as you know, that the, there was a priority to treat cats that had the, quote, obstructive Before. form of this. Yeah. And what that meant is that we made people, we suggested to people, I guess we made them, um, um, give a pill or a couple of different pills once to twice a day, okay. forever. Yeah. And that's a gigantic uh, yeah. imposition Yes, uh, on a lot of ways. You know, yeah. it, it changes people's lives, and the cats hated it. Yeah, mm -hmm. and as Mark Kittleson said, that might be a bigger stressor. You know, yeah. it might be worse. it might be worse. Than not treating them. So so one of the things, the first thing we found is we, we compared cats that were previously healthy, never had heart failure, um, that were obstructed, and those that were non-obstructed, and uh, over up to 15 years, and lo and behold, there was no significant difference. It wasn't even close. Hmm. Oh. So um, there was that, and now this study was not controlled for therapy, and vets could give whatever they gave. Yeah. Nevertheless, um, it was striking to find that the survival was almost almost the same. And that is really flying against what we um, thought, isn't exactly. it? Exactly, and 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 as you say, what we thought was based on um, based upon the, the the supposition that cat heart disease was like human heart disease. Yep. And it was naive to think it was that similar. <laughs> and uh, while it's similar, it wasn't identical. Yeah. You know, we should have learned because there's many examples. Um, outside of cardiology, even in, in feline medicine, where you've assumed, you know, whatever disease X is the cat has, yeah, right? Exactly. It's like the dog disease or like yeah, the human yeah, disease. And yeah. so often yeah. it's not. It's so, mm -hmm. and, and so that was uh, striking. And a, an interesting phenomenon has happened. In epidemiology, um, there's, to, there's a thing called evidence-based medicine. And that's what this is. So evidence-based medicine is that you, you consider all of the data and in personal experience, and you come up with um, uh, uh, assessments based upon the weight of, of the proof. Mm. Evidence-based practice takes the best available information coupled with a clinician's training mm -hmm. and then optimizes the way physicians or veterinarians actually tra uh, tr uh, treat patients. So evidence-based practice would mean in, in this situation that Many people had to abandon mm -hmm. their decades-long yeah. practice of giving beta blockers yeah. just yeah. because they always did it, mm. and accept that maybe that's not needed. Yeah, and, we always uh, thought we should. And may and and <laughs> and some people were annoyed over that, and they just automatically don't believe it. If you thought that were the world is flat, mm. then it's going to be flat. For hard to, through, hard to uh, shake yeah. your uh, yeah. preconceptions. So again, this was not a study that proved uh, that beta blockers or not beta blockers were beneficial, it simply showed that as cats, more than a thousand cats were treated around the world, um, one group did not do better or worse than the other group. No. Mm.
So is it has it made you abandon beta blockers in the obstructed cats? A what? Has it you made you stop giving beta blockers? Oh yeah, yeah. I I, I mean I have to practice what I preach, right? So, mm-hmm. so and I believe that. So in fact, um, and and uh, just to because these are huge numbers of cats, so your statistics get stronger with more yeah. cases. Um, this difference was like. 0.9 or 0.5 there's absolutely no case that you if you put a thousand or yeah, four thousand yeah. more cats in there that it might no the, the the probability number was not close to the mm. to the cutoff value at yeah. all okay. it yeah. was strongly strongly um significant so you need millions of cats to prove anything if if there is anything that yeah yeah okay. so that was it so that's one that's one change and um i think that many have taken stock of that and uh, have stopped in the asymptomatic patient and just just saying it was a knee, a knee jerk. There was a rationale for mm-hmm. it, but I think that time marches on and new information, you know, is uh, particularly when it's uh, substantial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so you published this. So how many people do you think ha- has reached it? Because, you know, what I always think of veterinary medicine is, and I'm surprised by it every day, that it can be published in the literature but people still hold on to their old yeah, practices. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's still a lot that hold on. Um, you know, so c- continuing education is interesting. I, I suspect that at very large meetings that I attend and speak at, professional meetings, uh, I think it's well accepted. You know, mm-hmm. f- um, I think that's not a problem. But many people lecture in all different forms, mm-hmm. and they affect many thousands yeah. of, of people. and. They they do social media and so that's harder to uh, mm. harder to assess and harder to change. I mean my my role in life is not to change people's mind. My role is just to provide the the data uh, from studies that were done as best as we could do them, mm-hmm. and hope that that contributes you mm. know to the body of knowledge that will help people make better better decisions. You know, but, as a as a cat veterinarian, any day I learn I don't have to give a medication yeah. is a good day. Yeah, yeah. probably, yeah. probably. Yeah. It's that's a good day. Yeah. That's true. And yeah, and why give it if, it, if there's no proof? No, yeah. you know, so to do a study that actually tests whether a certain drug is better than, than let's say, placebo is an enormous, uh, I mean, my golly, you'd need mm-hmm. a thousand cats or 800 cats to be followed for well, a God. dozen years. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine the cost of that? I, yeah. I, it'd yeah. be very hard to, and that's why it just hasn't been done. Yeah, yeah. So the life cycle of a cat with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy so from the time that you diagnose it and it's relatively mild how long does it take to progress yeah so that's that was the other thing we looked at we looked at um, at the time that progressed to heart failure or blood clot for mm-hmm. the obstructive and non-obstructive forms there was no difference between those groups then okay. we looked at the time from um, study entry when they were asymptomatic to when they died of heart disease that did not differ between the two groups. And then we looked at the time that they, from study entry to when they died of any cause, and that wasn't different. So um, uh, there was, now the, the disappointing thing was that we found that if you have this disease, you're much more likely to die prematurely relative to any other cat that doesn't have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So it shortens lifespan. It definitely, unfortunately, reduces their their uh, duration of, of life. And um, 
And do you think it's this, you, because we, we have a couple of causes, is it ventricular tachycardia that well, causes that in it, the cats? Uh, or? The cats who become affected are affected due to development of heart failure okay. and or a blood clot. Yeah, yeah, so back to those. Two. And the blood clots are very hard to treat, and unfortunately, mm. I don't know, um, there's no national registry, but I, I think it's fair to say, like, maybe one in... When, when, when a cat with blood clot comes in, they're very critical and sick, and we probably are not successful in more than somewhere between one in five and maybe one in 10. Yeah. And these are the typical blood clots yeah. of the hind legs. Hind legs yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think that, uh, I want to remember, I want to think that when in former times, 30 years ago, I used to say we would send one in four home. Now, that's what I thought we did then, maybe we did. But not now. Mm. I mean, the disease is much more severe uh, for some reason. And oh, colleagues, really? yeah, colleagues mm. around the country similarly say, yeah, it's very uncommon for them to be successful even with a single case. Mm. Uh, and even if you do, my experience has been they'll they'll throw another clot. Yeah, right. and if you're you're and actually there's a great you know our colleague in Indiana, uh, uh, you know that who studied uh, a drug called clopidogrel, which mm. is very similar to aspirin. It was a very nice study they did. They took cats that had a blood clot and survived and then um, compared aspirin versus this aspirin-like drug called clopidogrel. And the clopidogrel, uh, cats did much better. So that was wonderful information to to change practice. And now aspirin is hardly used. Clopidogrel is used more. And they live a bunch longer with the clopidogrel. So this was a great, great first episode. I really enjoyed this, and and I'm ashamed that it took us 32 so or whatever 33 many episodes or episodes plus to get a cardiologist took, on. I know yeah. it is really too bad, but you did an awesome job. So thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you back in two weeks. Yeah, we've only scratched the surface. I know. I know. <laughs> we'll be back with more. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs, and you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yerla Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. 
If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page, at per podcast.